Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today we have author conversations. I'm chatting with Margaret Verbal, the author of When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. Margaret Verbal is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and she offers readers a nuanced look at the history of race relations in America, too often a conversation limited to black and white. Her first novel, Maud's Line, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and her next novel, Cherokee America, was a New York Times notable book and won WWA Spur Award. Her book, When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky, comes out October 12th, 2021. Before I bring up our conversation, I wanted to say that I know you want to help me and you can support my podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. I'll add the link in the show notes. I'll also add links for 241 Libro FM and I'll add how you can contact me. So check out the show notes. One more thing, during recording, we had several connectivity issues and audio drops and lags. I did the best I could, but some spots you can tell that the audio is choppy. I would like to apologize to you for that in advance. And now, without further ado, pull up a seat, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Margaret Verbal, the author of When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. Margaret Verbal, welcome to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. I am super excited you're here. I'm honored to have you. I'm really looking forward to talking about your book, which is this guy here. I know the my listeners can't see it, but When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. It's really exciting. The book comes out next week. Is that right? Next Tuesday. Wow. How does that feel? Right now, it feels like I'm very heavily pregnant, and I just <laughs> want it to with. What was that? Heavily pregnant and what? <laughs> and just want it done with. I just want it out. So. so tell me, how long have you been pregnant with this book? When, how did the journey start? Well, I did, I've been pregnant with it for a while, but I haven't been heavily pregnant with it for a while. Okay. Uh, it took me about two and a half years to write it. And then I think we sold it. Oh, golly, I can't, I can't remember exactly when we sold it, maybe a year ago last summer, and we've been working on it since then. So, uh, so it's been a while. Okay. When you say we sold it, you're talking about your agent, correct? Agent sold it. That's correct. Okay. So you worked with this book with your agent for about a year and a half. No, I I wrote on it for about two and a half years. Okay. And I sent it to my agent and then my agent sold it to my publisher and my publisher and my editor uh, have been working on it with me for about a year and a half. So it's been, you know, it's been a probably about a four year journey. Wow. Where did this idea come from? 
I, I mean, obviously, I know two and a half years to write it. But before that two and a half years, you didn't wake up one day and said, you know what? Two feathers fell from the sky. All right, let's start writing. Or did that happen that way? I don't know. No, that did not happen that way. I have known for some time that I wanted to write a book set in the old Glendale Park Zoo outside of Nashville. And because I was raised on the grounds of that zoo after it had been destroyed and built into a subdivision. And so I grew up with that zoo uh, or with the memories, the haunting of that zoo, really. And uh, so I knew, I, I always knew I wanted to write about it, but uh, I just hadn't gotten around to it. And so I started researching it and it took about, it took about a year to research the zoo because there wasn't, there's not a lot, I've, only a, one other book has ever been written about it. That book was for children. So I had to go back into newspaper archives and read about it there. Park Zoo was in existence for, I guess, well, from the 1880s to 1931. So I had to decide then in what period did I want to set the book. And it took me a while to decide that. And I I set it then in 1926. Okay. Now, your book has a lot of themes with racism classism because you have blacks you have american indians and of course you have the caucasians and somewhere in your book correct me if i'm wrong i read where someone had said well the blacks are the lowest then it comes the american indians then the caucasians i found that intriguing tell me about writing about race, what your intentions are, and also writing about race. I mean, obviously, we are 100 years later from that date. Not much has changed. So tell me about how race features in your book, what your intentions are, where that came from with the class distinction between the Blacks, American Indians, and of course, the Caucasians. Well, I've always been concerned with race because I was raised in an American Indian family that was, at least I'm light enough in skin to mostly pass, but my, I, I have many cousins who are not, and the first cousin is extremely dark and no more uh, Cherokee than I am, and my whole family is on a continuum on that. But of course, we knew we were all uh, Indians because, you know, that's who our parents are parents and grandparents were. So having had the experience always of growing up, knowing that I'm somewhat the other, growing up in a predominantly Caucasian country, and I'm experienced and really having to do things like uh, talk to white people for my grandmother, who wouldn't talk to white people, who used me sort of as an interpreter. So not that she couldn't speak English, it's just that she wasn't going to talk to him. And all of that was seemed normal to me growing up. And then as I got older, I began to reflect on that experience. And as the civil rights movement came along, I was able to reflect on it in relationship to African-Americans uh, who 
obviously had an extremely painful experience. And so it seemed natural to me to write about uh, race and color and social class. A lot of people don't write about social class in the United States, but of course it's ever present. Of course. So, so I was interested in that also. And it just seemed natural to write about it because I had been reflecting on it for years and years and years. That's great. I'm going to backtrack a little bit, actually away from your book, because I'm really curious. You are a Pulitzer Prize finalist. I know nothing about, you know, entering to be, you know, even submitting for a Pulitzer Prize. I know nothing about it other than the Pulitzer is such a prestigious prize. So tell me more. I'm curious. Okay. Well, I didn't know much about it either. And your publisher submits your books. So at the time, I didn't even know that my first novel had been submitted. And I certainly did not know it won until my the administrative assistant for my agent called me. I was in the basement of my home, uh, sending an email, actually. And um, the phone rang, and I answered it. And this young woman said, uh, has had have uh, Lynn's on the phone, and have you heard anything? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. She says, well, I don't want to tell you. I want Lynn to tell you. Lynn is my agent. So my agent got on the phone, and she said, uh, Margaret, she said, now you have not won the Pulitzer Prize, but you have come in second. And she said, that's fabulous. It's going to change your life. And she was right. It is a life-changing experience. And she had to explain how the Pulitzer Prize works because until the day they announced the winner, there, uh, there are two other books that come in second. And nobody knows anything about it. I mean, they don't, there is no short list for the Pulitzer Prize, nobody announces ahead of time, well, these are the three books that are up for it. They just announce on the day of the prize, which is someday in April, they always do it. Everybody in New York knows what that day is. I do not. And then they announce the winner and the two finalists. Any way you go, it's good to be one of those three books. Uh, Absolutely. It does change your life. So let's talk about changing your life. I'm just curious, like when you say change your life, does this mean you get more speaking engagements, more agents are knocking down your door and saying, hey, I'll be your agent too, or tell me about that. Well, what it does, my first book, Maud's Line, did not receive very much uh, interest really from my publisher and my editor. They didn't do much to promote it. And I think... Personally, had it not been the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, it would have been hard to get a second book published. But since it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, it has smoothed my pathway forward. That's the biggest uh, change. Uh, another change, which is, is sometimes uh, embarrassing and, and odd to experience, is that 
a lot of people who I think would normally argue with me about things just do not bother to cross me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I love it. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) You know. I am not a whit smarter today than I was before I was honest for the surprise <laughs> to, to tread a little bit more gently because I'm likely to hurt people's feelings and make them feel like that they're not very bright if I disagree with them, which, you know, if I disagree with you, you might be right. So, so that's another thing. Oh my gosh, that would be worth it just there. <laughs> okay, um, back to your book. Who was your favorite character? Like, who did you was like, I want to write about this character. I am so in love with him or her and why? Well, I actually did not have a favorite character in the book. I'm a little bit partial to Crawford. Okay. Uh, I don't know. He just seems like a great guy to me. But I have a weakness for some of those other characters, too, and including Two Feathers. But but some of the, even some of the minor characters, I you know, I sort of like them. I like the Montgomery sisters. I I like so I like Bonita. Uh, so all of these characters, I'm pretty I'm pretty fond of them. I'm a little partial to Clive myself, but, you know. Well, I love Clive. And, you know, Clive is based on a real person. No. Yes, he is. And in real life, I discovered that everybody in real life just loved him. He was just the greatest guy and was so respected and knew so much. And in real life, people were absolutely wild about him. The way that I describe him in the book is the way that people felt about him. And men liked him, women liked him, little children liked him, and animals loved him. So I tried to portray him in the book as the kind of person he really was in real life. Because, you know, the dead can't speak for themselves. You can slander the dead and and ruin them in history. And I certainly did not want to do that to Clive. And I'm, I'm sort of partial to Clive, too. I like him a lot. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So um, what's your favorite scene? Mm. What did you like writing, like, the one scene? I I mean, I'm still, I still remember the scene where, you know, Crawford's checking out the platform before Two yeah. feathers is going for that jump. And, you know, he's like the something was off, but he's like, no, it looks fine. You know, he hit, heard these voices and then you have two feathers doing that jump. Yeah, I remember that one. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. What's yours? Well, you know, I said I like the first chapter of the book that okay. set the scene for the time and place. And I enjoyed writing that a great deal. Beyond that, I had a lot of fun with letting the uh, letting the lemur go in the in the dining room. In the dining room. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> you know? So I got I laughed at that every time I rewrote it, and uh, so that was that was great. And I enjoyed writing about the uh, Shacklefords because they are just such 
they they too are are based on a real family of people. And I didn't know if I could sympathetically portray them because they had been involved in a terrible scandal where a lot of people lost a lot of money. They were the Bernie Madoffs of, of their era. So they have been written about before and not always in glowing terms. But they also were people who had had 10 children and watched six of them die as adults. So you, you know that they have got some depth to them and have had some real hardship. And I wanted to, I wanted to capture that because even people who are scoundrels in some respect are also, in other respects, real human beings with heartache, just like the rest of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, here's a question I just throw at my authors. It's completely non-related to your book or writing, because I just thought it would be a fun question. Tell me, what is your secret superpower? What is something that you can do that people don't know about, but it's your superpower? I can concentrate. I have a, have a real ability to deeply concentrate. And a lot of people cannot do that. And I also have a real ability to take very large tasks and chop them up into little bits and accomplish a little bit of them one day at a time. Wow. Can you um, transfer that superpower to me? Because <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm total squirrel brain, if you, if you can't tell already. Oh, you seem fun to me. I'm just, you know, but anyway, um, tell me about the journey of writing and the journey of being an author, not just about Two Feathers, but, you know, how did that start for you? Well, I have two degrees in English and I have written professionally for a long time. So I have known how to write. But when I hit about midlife, I had a very successful career going already, and it had really eaten me up in terms of time and effort and things. And I, I began to have an overwhelming urge to write and to write fiction. And I did, I don't think I really had any choice about that. It was so overwhelming that I could feel it in the tips of my fingers. And so it just overtook me. And I spent about 10 years in the basement of my home in an office down there writing. And whenever I could, and that was often on the weekends, that was often at night, I traveled a great deal. And so there would be periods of time where I'd be gone four or five days and I couldn't do it. And then I would come home and I would write. And so I did that for about 10 years without any much, much feedback from anybody and without any association with any kind of writers groups or writers workshops or MFA programs or anything like that. And then I decided that I probably needed to see what other people were doing because when I originally started writing, I was so busy 
that I knew that I had time to either write or talk about writing. I did not have time to do both. So I had to do the writing first. And then after about 10 years, I thought, well, I'm going to need to talk to some other people about this because I don't have any idea how to get published. And I, you know, I don't know if this stuff is really any good. So I went to a writer's workshop and I went to three or four of them and got some really good feedback from excellent instructors. And then I wrote Mosline and it was published. And I've been able to go back to writing and not have to go to any more workshops. That is great. So tell me what happens in a writer's workshop. Well, in writers' workshops, you get writers who are published authors who have some concept of what New York wants. Mm-hmm. Which of course, if you're in a basement in Lexington, Kentucky, you don't know what New York wants. True. And they can give you feedback not only on your writing, but how to further your career. And I found that very helpful. And so uh, I got good advice and I took it. And it worked. That's great. Ten years you've been writing in your mm-hmm. basement. Yep. What were you writing for ten years? Were you writing a novel, short stories, random blog type posts every day? What were you writing for ten years? I was writing novels, and I'm basically a novelist. And one of the first pieces of advice I got when I went to a workshop was from a writer named Roxana Robinson, who's a Excellent, excellent writer and very well connected in the literary world. And she said, why don't you write some short stories so that you get a little track record to build up? And I didn't want to take that advice because I'm not really a short story writer. So it took me about a year to take Roxana's advice on that. But I did. I did. I started writing short stories and I got them published. Got, I don't know, five, six, seven of them published. Uh, but once I got Maud's line published, I've never written another short story again. <laughs> that is great. I'm just curious, how do you get a short story published? Like, do you just take it all together and put it in a book? What do you do? Contact magazines? What do you do? Well, there's a there's a website called Duotrope, and it lists all the magazines that take fiction, and poetry. And it tells you what they're interested in because there's no way to figure that out on who want to get short stories or poetry published. And so I went to it. I looked at, you know, could I place it in this magazine or could I place it in that magazine? And they all have different criteria. And, you know, some of them want longer short stories and some of them want shorter short stories. And Some of them want short stories about certain themes or whatever. So you look at all that and uh, decide where to send it. So it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a great resource. I I would recommend it to anybody who's trying to get short stories published or poems published. Excellent. I'm told like when you write a novel, other authors have told me, you know, it goes through several drafts. So here you are in your basement, you've got your novel, you know, you've done this writer's retreat later on, you did your short story penance, and then, yeah. you, 
And then you've got Ma's line and um, you've got this book. How many times did you read it? What was that process? Okay, so you've got that first draft. How many other drafts do you go through? Then who do you let read? What is that process? I mean, I'm looking at more of the writing process here. Well, the process is that you write a first draft and then you rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And and you eventually get to a point where you know that you have to have somebody else's opinion. So you get people who are friends of yours to you give them copies and ask them to give you some feedback. And then you rewrite according to that feedback and rewrite some more. And then you, you get to a point, or I got to a point, where I thought, well, I cannot improve this anymore. I mean, it's a done, it's a done novel. And so then I send it off to my agent. Now the deal is that there's no particularly, there's no particular time period for this. I actually wrote Cherokee America, my first novel, before I wrote Maud's Line, my second novel. Cherokee America is a much more complicated novel. And it took me, in the end, it took me 14 years from the time I started that novel to the time we sold it in New York. Maud's Line took 14 months, which is totally abnormal, completely abnormal. And at the time, I was traveling back and forth between the United States and the UK in that 14 months, and I was desperately ill, and I still pulled that novel out in 14 months. But that's how, you know, I don't know anybody else who's written a novel, you know, of high quality in 14 months, particularly under those circumstances. It's much more normal. The uh, uh, when two feathers fell from the sky, took two and a half years, and that's that's a much more normal length of time to write a novel. Now you talked about having an agent. You're like, oh, I wrote, you know, Maud's line. I wrote it, wrote it, wrote it, and then I sent it to my agent. Mm-hmm. So you already had an agent at that point, or no? I did not have an agent at that point. I I mentioned Roxanne Robinson earlier on. Yes. And she had been trying to get me an agent for several years. Okay. And she had not been successful in that. Working with Cherokee America. And it is a novel that has several points of view in it. And it's about a novel of a whole group of people because it's a novel about Indians, American Indians. And the notion of one person as the lone hero is completely foreign to that culture. So, but that's what people in New York want to read. So I went to a novelist workshop and I had a very good instructor there named Nancy Zafras, who has just recently died. And she said, she looked at Cherokee American, she said, this is a wonderful novel. She said, but they don't, they don't understand this kind of novel in New York. You need to write a novel about one person and follow that person through because that's what they want for a first novel. I said, okay, I can do that. 
So I went home and I wrote Maud's Line as an effort to get Cherokee America published. And I made for the four old people in Maud's Line are young in Cherokee America. So they are linked. And once I sent Maud's Line, I, uh, when I finished Maud's Line, I, I told Roxana, I finished a novel. I'm going to try to find somebody to send it out to. And she said, my agent is now taking new clients. Send it to her. So I did. I was in Edinburgh at the time. Actually, I was sitting alone in a hotel room. I was, I, I was tired. And um, I wrote Roxana. And uh, she wrote me right back and said to do that. And I, I flew back to the United States three or four days later and uh, did it. And uh, I was very ill. I had cancer. I didn't want anybody to know it because I was afraid they wouldn't invest in me if they thought I was dying. So uh, I sent the novel off uh, before I went into the hospital to be operated on. And when I was in the hospital and flat on my back, I uh, heard from Roxana's agent. And she, she sent me an email and said, send us send us uh, an electronic copy of you. I was so sick, my best friend had to set me up in the bed and bring my computer to me and my magic stick to me. And we did it from my hospital bed. When Lynn, my agent, called me and said, I'd like to become your agent because I love this book. I was, I was home by then, but I was, I was really, really ill and really uh, had a lot of pain medication on board and I took that telephone call and when I got off the phone call I thought you know I've got a lot of pain meds on board I wonder if that really happened or I just sort of hallucinated that and <laughs> fortunately Lynn called me back in in two weeks and I'm glad. I finished yeah, we finished the deal then, and you know, she sent me a contract, and all, we were off and running. And I, you know, I I got better. I, you know, I got well. Excellent. I am really glad that you got well. Uh, totally, it's horrible what you know. It, you know what you went through is horrible, but I'm really glad you're Thanks. much better. It, it's um, any kind of sickness. <laughs> Is it? It's it's rough. It, it just is rough. Any any um uncertainty mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. is um it's just rough to deal with because then you're facing. You know, people say, "Oh, yeah, I understand." I yeah, no, I totally get it. No, they don't get it. Yeah. You never get it until you go through through it. I mean, I've been close, but not there you know like it's for me it could have gone pretty bad it could have it it could have gone pretty bad but um it didn't so but you know and it it was only when I was right there where I'm going man this empathy thing we we tell people all the time oh yeah I get it Margaret I totally understand what you went through I mean I do not I do not get it I cannot get it. I can try, but I cannot because, you know, even that microscopic 
elements that I went through was hard enough. So more power to you. Um, I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad you're, um, you know, writing and all of that. Let's talk about books. What is your favorite childhood memory of books? What got you started on the, on the book journey, like when you were young? Well, I was not a, uh, a child that just read all the time. I was a child that was outside playing and carrying on all the time. But I did, I did read some, and I started reading. I think I started reading fairly seriously when I was about 14 years old. I just read anything. I, I read randomly. I read books that I just came across somewhere with no real particular direction or reading. My parents... My father read a great deal, but he read biographies and history and economics and things like that. He was not a novel reader. And my mother was a school teacher and she spent her evenings grading papers. So she didn't have time to read. So I, you know, just randomly began reading and continued to do that and then got a degree in English and then got a master's in English education. So uh, that set me off. But I spent really probably about 30 years or so not reading novels at all. I read biographies and nonfiction and then came back to literature shortly before I started writing it. But it's Which still not normal. That's not normal at all. Any, but it's still reading, right? I mean, uh, yes, I, I was reading. But I wasn't reading fiction. Fiction had gotten, you know, I'd read Thomas Hardy and Jane Austen and all the great authors. And then, you know, at the time I was in college, a lot of fiction was was written by a lot of white male authors. And it just bored me. I just, you know, I couldn't relate to it. And so I began reading other kinds of things and uh, enjoyed them. I, I really, in my 40s, there were a lot of biographies, and I found them very helpful to read about successful people at a time of life when I was trying to be successful and read about other people's lives and see that it, nobody has a smooth path. Everybody's path has boulders and rocks and detours and washouts in it. So that was helpful. Good. So who do you look up to? Like, who do you follow? Well, I probably know as little about popular culture as anybody you'll ever talk to. And I can't say that there are a whole lot of people that I necessarily look up to that are still alive. I'm a great admirer of Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, there are other people that I admire, but I can't, you know, I'm too old to be looking up to people. I'm <laughs> You're like, I'm just like, I don't need to be looking up because I'll lose my way on my path if I look up. <laughs> you know, look no, you're like, ahead. listen, I'm a Pulitzer Prize finalist. You look up to me. I'm done with the looking up. <laughs> no, no, no I, well, it's not, it's not that I, there aren't people that I admire but there are very few people that, you know, Angela Merkel, I admire her. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, of course. I absolutely admire her. Um, and, and like I said, Eleanor Roosevelt, I admire her. But 
you know, those are people that are not in my field. And I just, I just sort of not, I don't pay much attention to what's going on outside of what I'm doing. And, and I've got, like I said, I concentrate really, really hard. So everybody know, everybody knows more about other things than I do. I'm the least informed person that you'll be talking to. Okay. Well, you and me, you and me, that makes two of us. I live under a rock too. Uh, You had made a comment about how you were reading books by white men and they bored you. Yeah. So I want to touch a bit about that because, you know, last year they started the hashtag own voices about how we need more authors from different cultures writing about their own cultures rather than having white people write about other people's cultures. What are your thoughts about that whole movement? What are your thoughts about getting other cultures and people from that culture to write books and all of that and and vice versa. Like for example, let's say I'm writing a book right now. It's based on my culture. Yeah. But yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. My book? Yeah. Well, so my book really is the concept of arranged marriages. Oh. And it's about women, young girls who have dreams in their lives, yet their dreams get derailed because marriage is more important for a woman than anything else in her life. And then there's such a thing as arranged marriage. So how does a woman navigate that path? And it really starts with my main character, you know, wanting to be an artist. And she has negotiated and begged her parents that she, please let me go to art school. And it starts with her in art school. And then there's a marriage proposal. And that's how the book starts. Hey, that's really interesting. Uh, most Americans don't know anything about arranged marriages. And so that'll be a really interesting. It's different. But that's where my question comes in is, like you said, most Americans don't know much about arranged marriages. Well, most Americans don't know about something else. Like maybe I don't know about Cherokee Indians. I don't know about, you know, uh, the Hispanic culture, which also puts it in such a way that just like we're talking about, like you said, well, you know, those books about with the white men, they just bored me. If I wrote a book, a predominantly Caucasian culture could say, you know, that book about that woman who got an arranged marriage, that just bored me. How do you find that balance? What are your thoughts about all of that? Well, first of all, I'm glad that the publishing industry is publishing people other than just white men. Praise the Lord. Thank God. Yes. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, one of the things that I worry about is that if we have a world where we all need to get along with each other, 
I think in our literature, we need to show a world that's not just American Indian or African American or Asian Indian or whatever, Japanese. We need to see people interacting with each other. We need to have models for people of different races and different cultures to interact with each other. And so I worry that some of the the pull in our literature is to just talk, well, let's write a book about this group and let's write a book about this group over here. And these groups need to, we need to get along with each other to see each other as human beings and to have models where books where people are getting along with each other. So I have white people and African-American people and uh, American Indian people all messed up with each other. And I think that's instructive. And and the same thing was true of uh, Cherokee America. We had uh, African-Americans, American Indians, and white people all working together with each other. So that's my preference because I think that we need to I think we need to live in a world like that. That's beautiful. I, I no, no, I, I love it. I, I love it. And and you're absolutely right. That is one of the strengths of your book, I feel, because you have these three cultures yeah. interacting with each other yeah. in the yeah. 20s. Yeah, in the 1920s. And, yes. and, and we need we need to do that. I, I feel pretty strongly about that and have worked in places where people, I worked the kingdom for a long time and on projects where I worked with people from all over the world, all working together on the same problem. And I like that. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely, that's op- absolutely great. I love it. Let's kind of wind down. Here are my okay, two sure. with the last three questions. And it okay. all has the number three in it. <laughs> Your top three books of all time. Oh, to read? Three, yeah. Oh, gee, I don't I don't know. I can talk about the author, the uh, British authors. I think Hilary Mantel is the best living writer that we have in English language or maybe some in other languages, but unfortunately I can't speak, I can't read other languages. I like Sarah Walt, Waters who is also a British author. She writes historical fiction. I like Ian McEwan, another British author. Uh, So I'm partial to the Brits. Uh, That's not to say I don't think we have really good American writers. We really do. But um, when I look forward to opening a book, it's, it's, or if I see that any of those writers have a new book, I'm just like on it, you know. Sure. I've, you know, you've just stolen my next question. It's like top three books. You're like, well, let's just talk about top three authors. You just went with three authors. It's just totally, totally, totally fine. It's all good. Um, okay. Last question. You ready? It's a tricky one. I guess so. Let's do it. Describe okay. your book, When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky, in three words. Can't do that. Can't do that okay 
Okay. I'm just going to, I, you know, I'm still processing that one. <laughs> I can't do that. Okay. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't, I can't describe it in three words. It is, it's a little bit too complex for that. Okay. No, that that's totally. Yeah. That's I mean, it's got totally a longer fair. title than three words. You know, it's got a title that's almost a clause. So. Which is a great title, by the way. If we could have described it in three words, we would have made that title. True. That, that, <laughs> right. That is true. It was quite a title, though. I'm kind of like, you yeah. know, when I first read the title, When Two Feathers Fall From the Sky, my I was very literal. I just looked at it and I was like, oh, When Two Feathers Fall From the Sky. So I'm thinking in terms of some kind of allegory to literally like feathers. Yeah, yeah. Falling from a sky and two feathers. Well, yeah. I told a friend of mine, I was all excited. I said, oh, I got this book. You know, they sent it to me. I'm so excited. I'm going to talk to this author. And she said, what's the title? I said, well, when two feathers fell from the sky. And, and she said, oh, so it's about uh, American Indians. That's that's cool. What? <laughs> she, I mean, that was like, she's like immediately, boom, got it. And me, clueless, going, huh? <laughs> Two feathers. Okay. She goes, it's an American Indian name. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, maybe she should be doing this podcast. <laughs> like, and then I'm reading it and I'm going, oh my gosh. Because, you know, even the cover you can see two feathers up there in the corner you know you can see it <laughs> yeah but but anyway hey you know i'm clueless about most things don't feel bad okay <laughs> well i just want to say margaret this has been absolutely wonderful i apologize for all the audio breakups yeah you know, would, who knows? We can't control the internet. You understand. Right. Can't <laughs> control that. But I do thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And I wish you well on your novel. Thank you. That was Margaret Verbal. I loved her sense of humor. I found she balances seriousness with wit quite well. Okay. Upcoming episodes, I have book club episode for How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. And I'm working on another episode about a brief email exchange between a teenager and an author. Stay tuned. And that's all I have for this time. Check out the show notes. I'll add my contact there and I'll also add the buy me a coffee link and the libro fm two for one deal there the opening and closing music for this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband brad slavic i'm dr shanaz ahmed with living a life through books signing off remember to water the seeds within you it's time <laughs>